Amen. Say hi to a couple of people and then have a seat. Hope everyone's doing well today. I'm good. Uh, 31 years ago, tonight was the luckiest day of my life. Uh, not so much for Anne, but for me. So. <laughs> but so I'm celebrating our anniversary by leaving tonight after church for China. So, um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> No, we went out and celebrated last night, so. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Hmm? Yes, Sally. Okay, what color? A silver Ford Flex with their lights on. So if you have a real good battery, you should be fine, but (laughs) if you're not sure, I'd go turn them off. All right. Acts chapter 6. The church was beginning to grow and they were getting, going through various tribulations and trials and problems and persecution was beginning to kick up. And um, it says in chapter 6 verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the um, Hellenists, which were, they were Jewish people, but they were more of the Greek culture. Uh, They spoke Greek, and even though they, um, you know, were Jews, they were complaining that their widows weren't getting the same treatment as the Hebrew-speaking Women And so the disciples who were trying to oversee everything, take care of everything, got this complaint. And so the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples, got everybody together and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were realizing early on that so many people had so many needs and everyone wanted to come to the apostles to have them settle disputes and basically everyone just thought that, thought that church was a place to come to get what you needed and to demand things to be done your way, and it became a hassle for the disciples, and they could have spent all their time just dealing with those kinds of situations, or you know, they could assign someone to oversee some of these things. And, and we learn here that uh, for, the, for the pastors, for the apostles, the word of God, teaching the word and praying, was what their job was. And they, they made sure that they didn't let anything else crowd that out of the way. And in fact, 
you know, that's still a huge need. You know, as soon as you're a pastor, as soon as you're a leader, it's amazing how many different kinds of things that people want you to do other than praying and teaching the Word. And it's not realistic to, to just say, all I'm going to do is pray and teach the Word. But at the same time, you really need others to come alongside you to, to take the burden so that you are able to adequately um, study the Word and to teach it and to spend time in prayer. And frankly, very few pastors have enough time to do that well and a lot of times we're just tied up with a whole bunch of other stuff. And people kind of expect that. You know, they, they see that, hey, come on, you only work two days a week, just Wednesday night and Sunday morning. And uh, if, if a pastor begins to take on too much, one of the first things that'll suffer is the word of God and prayer. And ultimately, you'll lose a pastor when the pastor doesn't have time to devote to those things that are most important. Um, you can't please all the people. And if, if a pastor is doing his job right, he's probably going to be accused of being lazy and not doing much and being you know, a flake and all that kind of stuff. I've never been accused of that, which tells me I'm probably not doing the job right. <laughs> but... Uh, Early on, they recognized that that was the case. And it's really important for the whole body that, that we understand that we protect those who teach the word, that we protect their time, that we not take up their time with you know, wanting them to be everywhere and do everything. Because that it's a trade-off. Whether we like it or not, it's a trade-off. And so um, they pointed that out. Now, notice that the guys that they wanted to, they picked seven guys that many, most people say these were the first deacons, um, first people in the church who were assigned to taking care of more physical tasks. But look at the requirements for people who were going to do donut ministry in the early church. <laughs> it said they needed to be of good reputation. Uh, good is in italics and Reputation isn't really the word, it's martyreo. It's just the word that's normally translated witness. But there to be witnesses. And uh, good reputation probably is implied in that, that their life is such that their life is a good witness. And they are full of the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. To pass out food? Yeah, to do anything in the name of Jesus. Every, no matter how menial the task, if, if we're going to do it as unto the Lord, then it's important to be controlled by the Spirit in the way that we do it. Often we think, yeah, but, you know, I'm cleaning the restrooms, I'm watching the parking lot, I'm, you know, tweaking the knobs on the video or the audio, or I'm doing, and, and you go, that's not a very spiritual thing. But the truth is, everything that we do for the Lord is important as everything else that we do. And it's just as important that the people who are involved in the various aspects of the ministry, it's just as important that they are filled with the Spirit as it is as I am when I teach the Word. There's no, there are no people in the church who need to be more spiritual than other people. Because, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. His emphasis is on the fact that they are witnesses. Witnesses. 
So, I mean, there are people who reject Jesus Christ because of the way they're treated at a church. There are people who just won't come back because their feelings get hurt because of something that happens in a way that's just, you know, doesn't seem like a big deal. And people can often be picky and they expect too much and things like that. But, you know, once in a while we have, and we had one recently where a guy's car got damaged as he pulled into the parking lot and he hit a parking barrier thing that was there. And, and so, you know, you could tell him, hey, go to your insurance or, you know, we'll put it up to our insurance or whatever. But instead, what we did is Kenny got the estimate from him and we're just going to pay it. And you go, oh man, are you kidding? I mean, I wouldn't do that myself. Well, we're witnesses. And so everything that we do, we want people to get the idea of what God is like in the way that we handle it. And so before we had a lady who came and it was her first Sunday to come here and it was Easter and uh, she parked over in the church parking lot next door. And we were really packed and everything and they don't like us parking in their parking lot and they had her car towed. So she's an elderly lady on a fixed income and she gets her car towed on Easter. But, you know, it was so amazing because a couple from our church, it wasn't their job or anything, they saw her out looking for a car. They said, can I help you? They took her, um, drove her home to get her credit card, took her to the tow place, helped her get her car out. And, and she, her attitude was so, uh, she was so blessed by people just caring for her. And then she was really surprised when we sent her a check to pay for the towing and and everything, and it was like, yeah, that's, you know, that may seem like it's off, off topic for a church, but every way in which we can be a good witness, I know people who are in our church today because the first time they came, they were impressed with how a, an usher met them in the parking lot, or a greeter met them in the, in the foyer, or, or someone gave them donuts without asking them to pay for them, or you know, just little things like that. Everything that we do in his name, we're representing him. And so everything that we do, it's so important that we be filled with the Spirit. And when we're not, it's a, it, it's a bad witness and it can have horrible consequences. Years ago, um, over at Calvary Costa Mesa, we had a guy who worked there on the grounds who just had a horrible attitude. And... Uh, I wouldn't even mention it except I've heard Chuck talk about him on the radio several times, so I think I'm off the hook on that. But, but he did great work with what he did, and he did landscaping. And he was brilliant at it. He did an awesome job. But people were constantly saying, who's that guy who's out there? Every time we walk by, he's complaining about how much he makes. He's, you know, he calls himself you know, Chuck's slave and all this. And... <laughs> Eventually, Chuck had to let him go, not because he wasn't doing a good job at what he was doing, but the job of everyone at the church is to represent Jesus first. And so that, you know, sometimes you have to let someone go because their attitude isn't right, or in some way, they aren't controlled by the Holy Spirit in doing what they do. And you just have to acknowledge it and recognize it. And it's hard because you know, when you have volunteers in the church, it's not that easy to get people to do the various tasks in the church. And so 
the idea is, well, look, I'm a volunteer, so how dare you tell me how I do this? But we'd be better off not offering any services at all rather than to have people who in any way represent Jesus doing their job with a bad attitude or doing their job in the flesh. Um, and we, we have that happen periodically and have to address it. But this is something that we see with the early deacons is that their qualifications were really no different than those of a pastor. And they also needed to have wisdom. And they'd put them in charge of these things so that the, the apostles would be able to continually pray and to minister the word. It's not so that pastors can loaf around. It's not so that they could get long vacations or so that they could you know, play golf every day. It's so that they can devote themselves to prayer and the word. And I, I like this. The saying pleased the whole congregation. Everybody goes, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And so they chose. It was the people who chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see in the next chapter, he preaches this amazing sermon and became the first, literally the first martyr of the church. But his job was to pass out food. Um, it's interesting that all these guys have Greek names, and so they were probably selected from the Hellenists in order to see to the needs of the Hellenistic widows. And the principle there is often when someone recognizes a need, they're a good, good person to involve in the process or to put them in charge of it. Um, we used to always joke at Calvary about, you know, if you think that the church ought to be doing some new ministry, don't go ask about it because you'll be in charge of it if you do. And that's kind of what they did, and it's a good principle. If you care about something and no one else does, don't complain about it, do it. Take it over. And so Stephen was the first one mentioned. Philip, who we're going to see him in a couple chapters ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's interesting how these guys really did all the work of the ministry, but their focus at this point was on serving, um, freeing up the pastors by doing the various, um, take, seeing to the various needs of the body. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. We really don't know much about those guys. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, and then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. The result of the people in the body encouraging other people in the body to step up and take responsibility was not just that the widows were fed. That was a byproduct. The real great thing was the, the church just boomed. The gospel spread, even to the point where priests were accepting the Lord, the Jewish priests were, because the pastors were able to do what the pastors were called to do. And other people were doing what they needed to do and, and making it possible for the pastors to spend that time in prayer and in the word. And trust me, the more time a pastor has to pray and to prepare, the better the results, ultimately. And so um, that's what happened. The word of God spread. So Stephen, full of faith and power, 
did great wonders and signs among the people, which is interesting. As soon as he gets the job as the food guy, miracles are happening in his life. So as he was passing out food, as he was doing the various deaconing work within the body, it's amazing that God was using him to minister to others. And that's always the way the church is supposed to work. It's not a handful of people doing all the ministry. It's all the people doing ministry as they see fit. And having a position in the church, whether it's helping with a food ministry or helping with an outreach or whether it is teaching Sunday school or whether it's ushering or greeting or whatever the task is, that's really just an excuse to get before the people so that you can minister to them, so that you can make a difference in their lives. And so ultimately, I love it when somebody tells me, yeah, it was weird, you know, I was leaving church and one of the ushers came up and offered to pray for me. And, uh, you know, I'm like, and they go, I don't know, is that okay? I don't want to get him in trouble. I'm like, absolutely. It's why on Sunday mornings when we have people come forward to pray, I just say, anybody who wants to come forward and pray with people, by all means, come and do it. And I would hope that if you call and talk to a receptionist, and this happens every day, people call, and they, if they need prayer, they don't necessarily have to talk to a pastor. The receptionists and the secretaries can pray with them. And, you know, our sound people will pray with you. Our ushers are... The people that are stacking food on the donut table, the people who teach Sunday school, everyone here is a minister. And that's when awesome things happen. And so Stephen was just flourishing as he ministered to people from his post of being a deacon. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. There were hundreds of synagogues in Jerusalem proper and in that area. And this was just one of them, and it says it was comprised of Cyrenians, and they're from in North Africa, Alexandrians from Egypt, those from Cilicia. Cilicia is the area where Paul came from, uh, where Tarsus is, um, and from Asia, which means Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, north of Israel. No doubt, in this group, in this synagogue, Paul was probably one of those who was coming to argue with Stephen. And these guys were very well educated, the leaders of the synagogue. And so they were coming. And invariably, when someone wants to attack the truth of the gospel, they look for someone that they think will be weak. They don't usually come and say, who's the most educated person here? I want to argue with you. They would rather trip up someone who they perceive as being vulnerable. And so they figured, here's this guy who's working in the soup kitchen. Let's talk to him and let's trip him up. And as they, as they disputed with him, and the word they're disputing with Stephen isn't a derogatory term at all. It's just, it just means they were having healthy dialogue at that point but they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They couldn't, they couldn't talk him down. They couldn't even affect his attitude. If someone starts arguing with you and you get mad, they've already won the argument. Mad people don't win arguments because you usually get mad because you're wrong. 
or you don't have a good way to defend yourself, but they couldn't get to him. So then they secretly induced men, they trumped up charges against him. These guys said, oh, we've heard him speak blasphemous words about, against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and came upon Stephen and they seized him and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, Jerusalem, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Of course, Jesus had predicted the destruction of the temple, but he was also predicting that he would be destroyed, that he would be killed and crucified, and that's really what he was talking about. But they're taking this out of context and trying to make Stephen look like some sort of traitor. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Can you imagine being accused of things that would carry horrible penalties, basically the same things that they used, trumped up against Jesus to get him crucified. And now this poor guy signs up to pass out food, and next thing you know, all the Jewish religious leaders are attacking him with false witnesses. And he sat there, and even when they looked at him, he looked angelic. What do we look like the first time someone says anything against us at all? What's our attitude when we are accused or attacked? But for him, talk about being filled with the Spirit. He just had this angelic face, which, by the way, tends to make people even madder when they're trying to attack you. But it just shows something about his character. And the high priest said, are these things so? There in verse 1 of chapter 7. And he just goes into a sermon, and it's amazing. And usually when somebody's kind of a beginner doing a sermon, they kind of go too long, and, and he, he definitely does that. He, he give, tries to give them an entire history lesson, but he wants to explain to them the truth of, of the gospel. And so he said, brethren and fathers, because some of them were older than he was, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. Now this is an interesting little tidbit. and We get a lot of good history from chapter seven in Stephen's message. He knew details that we didn't see in the, in the Old Testament. No doubt they had been handed down or perhaps were from other sources. But this is where we find out that when God spoke to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees, he told him to go to Canaan, but inst- he also told him, leave your family and go to Canaan. And he took his dad with him. He took his nephew with him. And instead of heading due west to Canaan, he headed due north to Haran. And, and uh, Stephen makes, helps us to understand that his dad had something to do with it, which was why he was told to leave his father. And finally, when his dad died, he ended up obeying fully and doing what God had told him to do. But 
the implication here is initially Abraham didn't do exactly what he was supposed to do. And, uh, but he ended up here now where we live. And God gave him no inheritance in it. Not even enough to set his foot on. Right away when he came, he didn't own anything. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So speaking of the Abrahamic covenant, when God spoke to Abraham even before Isaac was born, promised to make him a great nation, promised to give him all the land of Canaan. So he says, remember that? And the guys are going, what does that have to do with what we ask you? But he kept going. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And so uh, he says God intended to take them to Egypt for 400 years before they would get the promise of having the land and everything. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. So even in the Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis 15, it was told that they would go into captivity for 400 years and that then they would come and and they would get their land. And so uh, he says, um, then God says, I'll judge the nation they were in bondage to and they'll come out and serve me. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the guys are going, okay, this is a good Jewish history lesson. We're with you. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, delivered him out of all his troubles, gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And you remember all this story in the book of Genesis. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. You know, Jacob sent Joseph's brothers. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him. Seventy-five people left Canaan and came down to Egypt. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So he says, here's from God speaking to Abraham. Then you have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. And now they're all living in Egypt. And eventually they became slaves. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. In an amazing prophecy in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, they're going to go into captivity for 400 years and then they're going to get out. So the 400 years was drawing near and it says another king arose who didn't know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies. He wanted to kill the, the male children. As you remember the story of Moses being put in the, in the little basket and floated out in the water so that they wouldn't live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, 
and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. It's kind of interesting that typically we think of Moses as being a guy who wasn't a very good talker, but it takes Stephen to point out that actually he was a very good talker, and he was really good at what he did too. And so whatever you, however you interpret in Exodus, when Moses said, I'm not a very good talker, it didn't mean that he wasn't eloquent or that he stuttered or something like that. It probably just meant, I'm so shook up, I don't know if I can do this, plus the fact that he had been out in the desert for 40 years um, might have set him back a bit. But Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Moses killed an Egyptian, and he thought his brothers would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they didn't understand. He's trying to deliver them, and they were like, who are you? The next day, he appeared to two of them, two of the Jews, as they were fighting, tried to get them to break up and said, come on, you guys are brothers. Why are you wronging one another? But the one who was wrong of the two Jews pushed him away and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So you remember the story. Moses is like, uh-oh, I didn't know anybody knew about that. And so he heads out. Moses fled, became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, he's now 80 years old, spent 40 years in Pharaoh's house, 40 years wandering around in the desert. Now at 80, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. So now we're coming up into the early part of the book of Exodus. Stephen's pretty much going to do a through the Bible study with them. As long as they ask him a question, he didn't answer their question, but he, he wanted to get the whole story in. And then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So again, Moses is called to deliver his people. And this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So now he's starting to work it around, and his point is the children of Israel often have rejected those that God sent to them. This was the topic of Peter's sermon ultimately in Acts chapter 2 as well. Now he's gone a long way to get there, but he's pointing out how they rejected Moses, even though God had called Moses. But, he says, uh, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. 
him shall you hear. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses prophesies about another prophet. Like him, but different. And he says, this is what, this is the culmination of everything that God's doing. So Stephen warms them up about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the triumphant exit from, from Egypt and how they were there. And God worked in them. And then he goes, and by the way, remember in Deuteronomy when Moses said, there's another prophet coming after me? And they start getting nervous at that point. And, uh, and so he says, uh, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. He said the prophet he was talking about was the one who was with us in the wilderness. He's the one who gave the law. He's the one who spoke to Abraham. And they're like, okay, who is this guy? But he still has to rub it in a little more about the children of Israel and he has to bring up the golden calf. So he says, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They said to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. And this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rimphan, images which you made to worship, and I'll carry you away beyond Babylon. Now he's into the book of the prophets. This quote is from the book of Amos. And they put the scrolls for all the minor prophets uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all in one batch, and they called it the Book of the Prophets. So this was actually from Amos. But interestingly, it's not a precise quote. And a lot of times people get all up in arms about, um, you know, oh, that modern translations are bad, or that someone who puts it into their own words and paraphrases it, um, that that's a horrible thing to do with the word of God. But you see that in the New Testament quite often when they would quote the Old Testament. And sometimes it's different because they're quoting the Septuagint, which was the modern version of the Old Testament in their day. And sometimes like this, it appears that Stephen just kind of paraphrased what it said in Amos. And you go, yeah, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, no, he wasn't. He was just preaching a sermon. Luke was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he, when he wrote this down. But, but Stephen, quoting it, took liberties with the text and, and did kind of a living, new living translation of the book of Amos. And I just think that's interesting and I like to point it out to people who are just ranting all the time about modern translations um, that they did it in those days too. So this whole thing is God was mad at the people. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with 
Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Now he's clear up to the point where David is king. Who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Remember, God wouldn't let David build the temple because he was a, because he was a violent man. And so uh, Solomon, who was more of a philosophical peacenik, um, was able to build the temple with the stuff that David collected. And so uh, Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. And then quoting Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now his message is finally getting around to the question that they had asked him. Are you talking down against the temple? And he goes, well, let's talk about how the temple came about. First of all, Abraham, and then Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and, and then Moses led the children of Israel out, and then they got to come into the land, and Joshua led them, and they conquered the land, and David became king, and he wanted to build the temple, and Solomon was able to build this very temple on this site, but he said, you ever listen to Isaiah? And they're like, wow, you're doing the whole Bible, aren't you? He goes, yeah, God told Isaiah, a house is nothing to me. I don't live in a house. The whole universe is just my footstool. I, why are you making such a big deal about a building? So see, what Stephen is pointing out is God's not all sensitive about his house. See, we value houses, and so often we think that God must be really blessed by a really cool house. That was the mistake, really, that David made. That was the mistake that the children of Israel made consistently, and that was what was bugging these guys who were attacking Stephen, ultimately, was that they couldn't handle the fact that this is about one who had been prophesied of who would be what the whole Old Testament is about, and it's not about a building. Often people can get real, you know, uh, sensitive about the church building as if, and you know, this is a place where we can meet, we're punching out the walls so that more people will be able to, to sit down in here, but this building means nothing. It's meeting God that matters. If something happened and we lost this building and we met in the park next door and the tennis courts or something, God would be here just as much. And we shouldn't, I, I used to hate it when, you know, you'd hear people telling kids, you know, oh, don't run in the church, it's the Lord's house, you can't run in the, as if God is some finicky, like your aunt, where, you know, when you go to her house, you have to be on your best behavior and don't break anything. You know, I chase kids in the church, because I want them to feel like, yeah, this is, this is where we meet God, but God's not a, a, a stuffy old lady who who doesn't want anybody to have any fun or do anything. He's not worried about it. He, he loves us. And sometimes, I remember a couple of years ago at VBS, they um, taped up a bunch of decorations up here, and they were really worried that I would get mad because when they took the decorations down, it took the finish off of, of the banister up here. 
And they were like, oh, don't tell Pastor Dave. And, you know, I heard that. I came and looked at it, and I go, I love it. This is great. Every time I look at that stain off the thing, it reminds me of how God ministered to those kids and all the fun they had and everything. I don't, I, I don't like to be careless. I don't like the church to look like a dump or anything. But at the same time, it's just a tool. And that's what Stephen was saying. And right then he could just tell, uh-oh, he is talking against the temple. And that's all they could hear. They missed all the stuff about the prophet that Moses prophesied concerning, that Abraham prophesied concerning, and they missed what Isaiah, what the Lord said through Isaiah about it's not about a building, and oh man, they were, they were getting upset. And I think Stephen could see it. He probably had a whole lot more history he was going to go through, but because there's a lot of stuff in the minor prophets he could have brought up and a ton of stuff in Isaiah, but he realized they were getting too upset. So now he just and maybe he was kind of getting, he lost his place and, and just thought, I, I need to bring this thing to a close. So a, a decided shift at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And then Stephen goes, did I just say that or did I, was I just thinking that? And they go, you said it. <laughs> when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth, uh, a tradition that they had to show displeasure but he being full of the Holy Spirit, and it's kind of cool because he was filled with the Spirit as he was blasting these guys. So if you ever hear me blasting anybody, I'm probably not filled with the Spirit, but it, it, at least I know it's theoretically possible. <laughs> but uh, he, they, they came at him. He looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. They were surrounding him, gnashing their teeth and being angry. He looked up and he saw Jesus standing. Now every other place in the New Testament, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But this sermon got Jesus on his feet. And he was given a standing ovation to this little deacon who had just laid out a great history lesson with a punchline that packed a punch. And he was about to die, and Jesus was standing, probably waiting just to receive him into heaven. Stephen saw that. And uh, he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, that really made him mad. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That shows that he was involved in leadership. The guy, he wouldn't do the dirty work of the stoning, but they would... You know, he'd take care of their coats. It wasn't implying that he was just a valet. 
It was the idea that he was in a position of authority. This is the first we read about Saul in, in a couple chapters. Well, in the next chapter we see some things, and I won't spoil the ending for you, but in chapter 9 he gets saved. Um, <laughs> but they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. And check this out, man. Talk about a, talk about a guy filled with the Spirit. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he, he fell asleep. Amazing. When you think of what happens to us that we don't want to forgive, and we look at him being stoned by those who are supposed to be the religious leaders, and he's just saying, God, don't, don't charge it to their account. It's so reminiscent of Jesus hanging on the cross and after being tortured and saying, you know, God, forgive them. They know not what they do. An amazing kind of dying grace that's just stunning. And he just went to sleep and walked into the arms of a standing Jesus there in the presence of God. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That means that he was the one who approved it. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, southern Israel, and Samaria, central Israel, except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Saul and guys like him were just disrupting every church meeting they could. They were busting into home fellowships and dragging people off to torture them and to lock them up. And, and all it did was when people ran, they took the gospel with them. They left and you know, went back to other places and the gospel was spreading even more. And uh, Philip, again, another deacon, went down to the city of Samaria. Now, you get confused on the map because Samaria is north of Jerusalem and we would say went up to Samaria, but in Israel they always say up to Jerusalem and everything else is down. And so headed up there to what is today the west bank of the Jordan River, Samaria, and which was a place that the Jews didn't go. They would go way out of their way to avoid Samaria. The Samaritans were kind of half-breeds, they, they kind of made up their own variation of Judaism, but they intermarried with the Canaanites. And so the Jews really looked down on them. The Samaritans didn't want to come to the temple in Jerusalem, so they made their own fake temple and, uh, you know, Mount Gerizim there. And, and uh, so it's interesting that a guy who must have had some kind of a Greek background because he had a Greek name, but he was a Jewish guy who was living in Jerusalem, he left and heads up to Samaria. And, you know, you remember when Jesus told them to go into all the world, he talked about Jerusalem, the city that they were in, Judea, which is the surrounding area there in southern Israel, surrounding 
Jerusalem. And then Samaria, which was the neighbor that they couldn't stand, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they were just doing, um, Philip was just doing what Jesus had commanded them to do and went to Samaria. You remember Jesus, probably the first converts in Samaria came from John chapter four, the woman at the well, where Jesus met her and she went and got a bunch of men to come out and and listen to Jesus. And so no doubt Philip met her and some of those people who got saved that day and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Um, It's interesting how sometimes people who don't have a strong religious background will respond much better than people who are really close. Like finding people who grew up in, um, you know, evangelical Christian churches, but they've rejected Jesus, it's really hard to talk to them because they think they've already heard it all and they've done it all. I went to a Christian school or this or that. And and yet you, you find people who are really different and often they are the ones who will respond much better because it's not such a threat to them. Um, I find that, uh, and it's just so exciting to me, how many people who are raised in the Catholic Church where, you know, people in Protestant churches, you know, there have been wars fought between Catholics and Protestants and there are still a lot of Protestants who act like the Catholics are our enemies and we should hate them, but people who grew up in a Catholic church believe a lot of true things that are really important to believe. They've just never, many of them, most of them, haven't discovered a relationship with Jesus. But I've found Catholics so open to the gospel because it's, it's something that has substance to it. And they know that what they grew up with, they learned some stuff, but often they don't have that freedom and that forgiveness and that grace and so I love sharing the Lord with Catholics, and I don't, I don't attack them on their Catholicism. I don't talk about, you know, Mary being the co-redemptrix, or talk about transubstantiation or things like that. I talk to them about Jesus because they believe in Jesus, and when I share with them about the grace that can come from Him, I mean, I've seen so many Catholics receive Jesus and come into a relationship with Him by not going and telling them how they're wrong, tell them where they're right, and then fill in the the gaps. One night on a Sunday night when we had, and we were inviting new people to the church to come over to our house. A lot of you came on one of those nights, but one night we had like 19 people in our house, and we went, went around the room, and I think 14 of them had been Catholics before they, you know, came to our church and came to the Lord. And so this is the kind of thing that happens when you just go, look, you're just missing some pieces. And don't you know something's missing in your life? I mean, let's talk, we believe certain things that are the same, but man, there's some gaps here. And you don't have to deprogram people from what they believe. If they don't know Jesus, they know that something is missing. And that was the case here in Samaria. And so, I mean, they were just so into it. And uh, awesome things happened as he just shared the gospel with them. And, uh, and then uh, de- demons were delivered and coming out of those who were possessed and some paralyzed and lame people were healed and there was great joy in that city. 
When people respond to the gospel, amazing things happen. It's like inviting God to bless an area. And the result of it always is joy. That's how you can tell when you really aren't filled with the Spirit. Because you just don't have any joy. You're miserable. I feel so bad for Christians who have been Christians for many, many, many years and they know all the right stuff. But nothing's really happening in their lives and there's no joy that's happening. They seem miserable. Um, That's so sad. When the Holy Spirit's just waiting to make a difference in our lives, but we have to let him. And a part of that is sharing with others and talking to other people about Jesus. And so it happened here just the way it still happens and there can be great joy when it does. And there in the church, there was a guy, Simon, uh, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria. He was one of their top magicians of the day, and he had baffled a lot of people. Um, The word there for sorcery basically means tricks. It wasn't, you know, you don't have to read into everyone who did tricks as being, oh, you know, it was demons giving them supernatural power. Uh, In those days, even as in this day, most people who claim to have all these great miracles are really just fakes. The Bible calls them, you know, false wonders and signs. They, they can fake certain things. A good magician can fool you a lot. Now, I'm not saying that, that there is never a time when somebody who maybe has psychic ability or whatever and, and that there might be some demonic involvement in it, but so many times I've seen it and it's just really obvious that they're good at the power of suggestion. They're just good illusionists. And that was what Simon was. If he really had supernatural powers, he wouldn't have come and asked them for supernatural power because uh, he, was, he was most likely just a fake, but people were amazed by him. And so uh, the people of Samaria, and so they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they listened to him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. So this guy becoming a Christian, they made a big deal about it because he was a celebrity. And just like today, when a celebrity comes to the Lord, everybody gets all excited, wants to you know, put him in the forefront all of a sudden. Same thing there. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, men and women were baptized and Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this shows a couple things. It shows that being baptized in water in the name of Jesus isn't the same thing as being baptized with the Holy Spirit, as some people would say. It also demonstrates that you can, be, you can believe and be saved and be baptized and still not be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now there are some people who will say, no, this is the book of Acts and this is kind of a one-time occurrence. And, uh, you know, so anymore, it doesn't happen that way when you get, when you get saved, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit right then. 
Um, I'm not going to argue with you about it. You know, you can believe that if you want. It sure doesn't say that. And you have some people among the cessationists, the people who believe that certain spiritual gifts ended at the end of the first century, which is a belief that only came up in the last hundred years or so. But, you know, they say you shouldn't teach doctrine from the book of Acts because Acts was a period of transition. Well, the scripture says all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. So I beg to differ. You cannot say, oh, don't teach doctrine from Acts. So that's the doctrine I get from it. If you are afraid of that or whatever, no problem. I, I love you, and, uh, you know, but, but at least in this case, baptism of the Holy Spirit was a separate experience from being saved or from being water baptized. They laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. We don't know what happened. They probably spoke in tongues this time as they did in Acts chapter 2 because Simon was amazed. Whatever happened, it was amazing. So something happened that he was like, I want to buy that trick. And so when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The first attempt at multi-level marketing. (laughs) He goes, look, I'll pay you, you give me the power, and I'll do this too, and, you know, you get the kickbacks from it. You know, he was a performer. It's one reason why you don't take theatrical people and put them to the front right away. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness And pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And then Simon said, "Uh, pray for me. (laughs) Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things that you've spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And so... This interesting story of Simon. By the way, the, there's a term that you'll read about sometimes uh, called simony. And simony refers back to this story. And simony is when someone uses the ministry for the purpose of making money. They see the ministry as an opportunity for a business deal. And so this is appropriate given what we studied Sunday from 2 Peter chapter 2 about these plastic preachers, this was the first attempt at that happening. And boy, Peter would have nothing of it. Put these, uh, you know, put these guys in their places and, uh, you know, jumped right in and goes, this is not a business. I have to wonder how many things that are done in the name of Jesus and in the body of Christ that are scams and fundraising gimmicks and it's all about the money. And man, I could name a bunch of them, but I just get in the flesh. But how many of the things that are happening in the church of Jesus Christ today that the Lord's attitude would be the same as this, man. You repent, that's wicked. You're gonna perish with your money. If you think you can buy 
your way in, or you think that you're going to use this ministry as a profit center. I had a guy one time who was pushing one of the multi-level things, and he came to me, and he had a plan. I was at Calvary at the time, and he had a plan where if we would sign up everybody at the school, all the parents, with this thing, he showed me how much money they could make, and the plan was eventually I would be really rich, which would mean he would be even richer, and then my vice principals would be pretty rich, the teachers would make twice what they're making now, wouldn't cost anything, we could do school for free, and basically the entire ministry would be run by people selling multi-level products. And as he drew his pyramid on the thing and you know, laid it all out, I took him to Second Peter 2, and I said, you know what it means to make merchandise of people? It's exactly what you're doing. You're seeing the people as being something that you can market. And he wasn't very happy. He had been a friend of mine for a long time, which is why I let him do his spiel. He had a young guy who he was training with him at the time, and he sat there and looked at it, and he came back to me later, and he said, thanks. I was about to get involved in this thing, and you just reading that one verse let me realize, yeah, this isn't, this isn't what God would have. But that's simony. He was one of the first guys to do it. He was not the last by any means. Then we have the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and I don't want to rush through it because it's a, it's a great, uh, just a powerful story, and I want to have enough time for communion that we're celebrating tonight. So we'll break it off right there and pick it up. Uh, let's see, next, uh, you know, I'm leaving for China tonight, and Pastor Ken's going to teach next Wednesday, and then I'll be back the following Wednesday, and we'll pick up with that uh, thing. Make sure you come to church Sunday. A friend of mine, Joel Lopez, is going to be teaching. He's an awesome guy, really a neat guy. I love him, respect him. He teaches at Calvary. He used to be one of the guys that taught for me over there. And, and uh, he was his first year as a teacher, um, a little girl in his class, uh, Yvette Riley, died and, um, in a car accident. And I watched Joel, who he, he didn't know what to do as a teacher, at the time, but I watched him minister to those little kids, and he still does. All those kids are still in touch with them, and the family is still in touch with them. And uh, that's where you find out what someone's made of. So he's back here. He was back on the East Coast for a while, and he's back at Costa Mesa, so I wanted him to be able to come and share with you, so he'll be here Sunday. Uh, So make sure that you don't just take the Sunday off because I'm not here. I will watch online, and I'll know who comes to church and who doesn't. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. For these examples of simple servants. They weren't the preachers, but they sure preached. They weren't the leaders, but man, did they set an example. And as they served and shared the truth, the powerful things that you did in them and through them And we look at those days when the church was just so exciting. It was so vibrant. And Lord, we so want to have that kind of an influence on our community and on the people that we know. So help us to be what you want us to be. And help us to be the kind of witness that a guy like Stephen was.
who had the face of an angel when he was being attacked, and as he was being murdered, he was praying for the forgiveness of those who were doing it to him. That had to have, that sight had to have haunted young Saul. And we'll see when we get to chapter 9 how the pieces were put together, but I'm sure the rest of his life, Saul remembered that deacon, that food guy, who was such an example. So please help us to be examples in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.